news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Carly and Cece each have two queries today and we're going to kick it off with Cece. Will you read us that first query letter? Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, I'm a massive fan of the podcast, and choosing between submitting to Carly or Cece feels like Sophie's choice. But Cece recently tweeted that she wants rom-com mashups, so I guess she wins this round. Everson After is a rom-com with suspense elements that will be appreciated by fans of My Killer Vacation, and Finley Donovan is killing it. Everson is a cleaner for the criminal elite. She was a biochem major, so working around stiffs all day isn't that different from working in a lab. She doesn't love her job, but it pays for her mom's care, and since she developed the secret sauce, a cleaning solvent that removes all traces of blood, DNA, and other bodily fluids, she's even sort of using her degree. With crime raging in Atlanta, there isn't much time for dating, and she wouldn't have a clue how to act anyway. Grant is revitalizing the neighborhoods surrounding Atlanta, one flip at a time. Ever since his parents were killed in a car accident, he has fought to keep his younger brother, Levi, away from their uncle's criminal enterprise. But when his brother goes missing, he's convinced the beautiful cleaner from the crime scene knows more than she's letting on. 
As someone who has built a business from the ground up, Grant knows how to be persistent, and his plan is to wear Everson down until she agrees to help. In Everson's line of work, discretion is key, but she can't ignore Grant's concern that something awful has happened to his brother or the way her body responds to him. That's a chemistry she doesn't understand. When her clients turn on her, Grant may be the only person who can help. <laughs> Together, they take on warring crime families, search for Levi, try to unravel the mystery of a couple dead bodies, and might even learn that it's not such a bad thing to have a partner in crime. I have attended many conferences and workshops over the years and have completed several manuscripts. A serial and creative entrepreneur, I don't actively use my BS in marine biology, but my science background often creeps into my life when I least expect it. When I'm not writing, I love to play with fabric, master the game of poker, start new businesses, I have a problem, and hang out with my dog, Agador Spartacus. Thank you for your time and consideration. I am attaching the first five pages as per your submission requirements and the full manuscript is available upon request. Tara Horn. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? And can you also give us an indication of how many words? Let's begin with the word count. So this is around 420 words. Doable length. Of course, a little shorter would be better, but I think it's fine. I want to start with the first paragraph and just say that hopefully the Sophie's Choice situation is like a Twilight Zone version of it where like either choice is great and not actual Sophie's Choice because that would be depressing. Anyway, I would italicize titles or use all caps for titles for your comps. I know that you did it for your own title, but like when I read Finley Donovan is Killing It, it just, it took me a second. That's what I would do. It just helps with readability. When it comes to the plot paragraph, which is always the thing I obsess over, the last line of Everson's initial paragraph with the, with crime raging in Atlanta, there isn't much time for dating and she wouldn't have a clue how to act anyway. That threw me off a little only because we weren't talking about her dating life. Like that was not what we were talking about at all. So like, where did that come from? And I get where it came from because the next paragraph is all about Rand falling for her, but it still threw me off. So I would actually delete that line and then keep the third paragraph, which does say that she starts falling for him. Like you don't need to introduce her love life in that paragraph. It's, it's too confusing. I would also like to say that the premise is very cool. Like very, very, very cool. Like a cleaner for the criminal elite. I was, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this premise. This is awesome. When, however, I read the line in Grant's paragraph, he's convinced the beautiful cleaner from the crime scene. I was like, wait, does he know she's a cleaner for the crime elite? And I know that's not what you said, but it still confused me. So I think I would just tweak it as when he's convinced the woman he saw you know, you don't have to say the same words that she used to describe herself in her role, because that leads me to think, I don't understand how he knows her job if her job is clearly a secret job, right? Like there's no business card. There's no LinkedIn page for cleaner for the criminal elite. Um, I loved the hook. The hook was very, very cool. That would be my only note for you in terms of the query letter. Great, Cece. Thanks so much. Will you give us a summary of what was in those opening pages and then your take on them? Okay, opening pages, we have chapter one, that's Everson's point of view, and she's cleaning a crime scene, and she's saying that red wine and blood are two of the hardest things to get out, but of course she has her great super secret sauce situation, her concoction she invented, so she's using it, Tia, who's her assistant, is there, and she's talking to Tia, 
and her phone rings and her mom calls and her mom asks her about kitchen stuff because she's cooking dinner for her dad and Everson is thinking to herself there's so many things that are wrong with this line and later on which is good um later on we learn that it's because her dad has already passed and her mom is just not all there unfortunately she's probably has alzheimer's so that is happening and that happens through interiority and then a man knocks on the door and she pretends like she doesn't speak english she speaks she says certain words in what i am assuming is an attempt to speak broken Spanish and just closes the door. And then we have chapter two from Grant's point of view, where he is like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this gorgeous blonde before. But he's confused because Tony, we don't know who Tony is, probably lied to him about the location or the time or maybe the whole thing. He's trying to call his brother, can't reach his brother, and he doesn't understand what's going on. So that is what happens. In terms of my thoughts, I want to talk about micro stuff and then I'm going to go macro. So micro stuff. I This is a good opener, your current opener, but it's a little explanation heavy. So I think you can just elevate it. I think you can, you have such an interesting premise, right? Like a cleaner for the criminal elite. Someone who clearly lives in her head because she doesn't date, she doesn't hang around people. So I just think you can really, really elevate the opener here. I wrote a few suggestions of, of directions that you could go in. Openers are so important because they grab the reader. I like the, really like the detail about her snagging something from her therapist's desk. So that was really cool. I thought that was interesting. And I wanted to know more about this therapist. Like I didn't peg her for somebody who would go to therapy. I wonder if someone maybe talked her into going to therapy. So I really like that. The query letter makes a reference to the fact that she's pressed for money because she has to help her mom, right? And yet there's a line in interiority that says, if I wanted to market the shit, I could make a fortune. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I mean, if that's the case, then if she needs the money, then she should just market it. And then probably she can't because like her bosses would, I don't know, kill her maybe. And if that's the case, then her interiority needs to be a little bit different, right? Because she has a a way of getting out of this life if she even wants to. I guess it just didn't add up with, with the information in the query letter. And interiority has to add up. Interiority is hard to write because a lot of the times the writer forgets that you're supposed to show how a character thinks, not just what they think, but how they think. I marked a few lines that could be deleted. I marked a few lines that are a bit explanation heavy. There's lines, for example, Lucille was our neighbor back when we lived out near Decatur. But these days, my mother doesn't know where she is most of the time. Instead of just saying that explanation, it's pure explanation. You can flip it around and infuse emotion or opinion. So you can say, it's funny how your mom can remember who Lucille is, but not that her husband is dead. Like there's ways to do it. And it's annoying to have to go through line by line, but that's what I would suggest. The paragraph on Grant. There is a line where he says, I've never seen that gorgeous blonde before. And then later in that same paragraph, he says, so why is she here? And why did she lie to me about not speaking English? That chick doesn't have a Latino bone in that smoking hot body. I'd guess Swedish or possibly Norwegian. I understand that this is the character thinking this, but I just want to ask, is it intentional that he is completely ignorant about what a Latino person can look like? Because Latinos can be of any race. There are lots of white Latinos who are super tall, super blonde, and have super blue eyes. Giselle Benchen is an example, one of the greatest supermodels in the world. She is Brazilian. Her family has been in Brazil for eight generations. There are lots of places in South America and throughout the Americas, actually, that were colonized by the Dutch, for example. So I'm wondering, 
intentional that he doesn't know this because it sounds a little fetishistic. I would also, in Grant's point of view, would rather not know that he knows that she's lying. Like I would rather he just be for now confused and kind of buying whatever she's pretending because then the reader knows. So then you're giving the reader an advantage, thus rewarding their brain, while at the same time, kind of hopefully the reader is also rooting for him to figure it out. Overall, I love the concept, love, but the writing needs work. Line level stuff, yes, but also the unfolding of the tension, like in this example I just gave, so that we, the reader, are actively putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, let's go to the next query letter. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I am a shameless addict to the shit no one tells you about writing. In fact, I am now part of a writing group for one of Bianca's matchups and value their feedback in the community that this podcast has brought me. Thank you for the show and the opportunity to submit my letter to your Books with Hooks segment. My literary Southern fiction coming of age novel, Road to Woodstock, began as my creative thesis while at Hollis University. It is now complete at 70,000 words. Set in August 1969, my protagonist is 16-year-old Emma Joy Ryder, whose mama's unexpected death has left her without a family. Rather than let herself be placed in foster care, Emma Joy goes in search of her father, who went out for cheese whiz 10 years ago and never returned. She has it on good authority that he's headed to a music festival taking place in Woodstock, New York. Emma Joy only has five days to make the 925-mile journey from Woodstock, Georgia to Woodstock, New York. All the while, she's tailed by the determined Sheriff Mosby, a love interest of her mama, who is intent on finding her and bringing her home to safety. To further complicate matters, Emma Joy is accompanied on her journey by the apparition of her dead mother, who materializes out of thin air whenever the notion strikes. As Emma Joy makes her way north, she lies easily and with conviction to garner sympathy and rides. Along the way, she meets a diverse cast of characters, from a grieving peach farmer struggling under the remnants of the Jim Crow laws of the South, to a young man headed to Woodstock for what he's convinced will be his final hurrah before dying in Vietnam. Emma Joy's mix of longing and lies, change and chance gradually builds into realization that a father isn't someone you have to go find, but rather someone who comes looking for you. I have an MFA in children's literature and creative writing from Hollis University, where I was a two-time winner of the Shirley Henn Award for Excellence in Fiction and a recipient of a scholarship for a Foundation Writers Workshop in Chattahoga, New York. I have been a runner-up for the HMH Award for New Fiction and been published in Beginnings Literary Journal, Christian Women's Journal, and the Dead Mule School of Southern Fiction. A visiting writer-in-residence, Nancy Willard, critiqued my work and compared it to Kay Gibbons' novel, Ellen Foster, and my creative thesis advisor compared it to The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd. Thank you for your consideration, time, and feedback. Sincerely, Renee Ryan. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, word count, please, and then what was your take on that? All right, so this one came in at around 445 words. So I think it is long-ish, but that we didn't get over that 450. So I think this is a healthy place to be. So I think I think it works, even though it's a teensy bit, teensy bit long. So there's a lot of things that I think are, are really, are really working here. A Southern fiction coming of age novel. I think that's a really, really well-placed category. I think it's very accurate here. I would just make sure that your title, Road to Woodstock, is all capitalized. Make sure that it really stands out. It was definitely tucked away here because it wasn't capitalized. So I would focus on that. Okay, so now into the body paragraph here. I'm trying to figure out this cheese whiz bit. So it is kind of humorous. So I'm trying to figure out, is that intentional that it's humorous? Because you could just say like, yeah, the father went out 10 years ago and never came back. The cheese whiz bit, just see, it's so 
everyday, right, and mundane, but it's also kind of humorous because it's like it's she's whiz. So I was just trying to figure out a tone. I was trying to do a tone check there. I was like, okay, is that supposed to be funny or not? So I'm just letting you know it's kind of raising a couple questions for me there. So really, I think the hook here is great, right? She has to go on this journey. She only has five days to make the journey. So I love that we have like a time crunch here. I think that's great. The ticking clock element, especially in literary fiction where we don't always have big loud hooks. I think this ticking clock hook is is a really strong one. The hook is 16 year old in search of her father has five days to make it from Woodstock, Georgia to Woodstock, New York to find out the music festival right in 1969. So that's a that's a really strong hook. I definitely think you have something here. Now I want to get into the the mother bit here in Sheriff Mosby. So if the mother was dead, right? So her unexpected death, what is the kind of connection to Sheriff Mosby then? Is it, I just want to know more about their, their friendship or whatever you want to call it, right? So he thinks that bringing her home to safety is into foster care, but like, where is safe? Like is safe with him? Is it the foster care? I don't know. I just had some questions about their relationship and and what we all think is necessarily safe about that. And so, and then at the end, it says gradually builds into a realization that a father isn't someone you have to go find, but rather someone who comes looking for you. So doesn't that give it all away? (laughs) Because it sounds like Mosby, you know, potentially maybe wants to be the father and they have a solid relationship. So to me, that just gives the whole story away because the whole point is that she's going to find the father. And if you say here, the father isn't someone you have to go find, but rather someone comes looking for you. I think it's quite obvious that like Mosby is the father figure here, right? So anyway, it's a beautiful line. It's just, I just think we're giving it all away, unfortunately. So I just want to get into that friendship kind of relationship, pseudo father-daughter relationship, because I think that's a really interesting kind of unexpected pairing. And then the author bio, I think it's great, but we don't really have any comps here. You're saying that other people have compared my work to this, but you're not saying what you think your work compares to. So I really would love some comps from your perspective. I think that would really, that would help us out here. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay. Can you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? All right. So we are starting with the loss of the mother in the summer of 1969. We get a little bit of a kind of disclaimer about what the summer of 69 was like from the political movements, the war, civil rights, unrest, all of that sort of thing, all the protests. So we we get a sense of kind of what's going on from like a setting perspective. And then we get into it was a hot August morning and it was the mother's funeral. From her perspective, we get quite a distant perspective. So it's clearly that she's like looking back as an adult because this is a coming of age book and you can tell there's some distance here. So it's written a little bit kind of omnisciently in that sense. So We have Sheriff Mosby is at the funeral. We also understand that both of this child's parents were both only children and they were born to only children. So there's like no family anywhere. Everybody in the church is friends and uh, and she's basically just sitting with Mosby and, and kind of just going through the motions here. They make it back to the house. He kind of tells her you have to pack up because you're going to this foster home. And then she's basically thinking about how she's going to leave and how she's going to run away. And then she decides she needs to take her goldfish. So she pours out like a recyclable, like cereal bin, you know, where you'd like store your, your Cheerios, pours that out and then fills it up with water and then puts her goldfish in and then like closes the lid so she can take it with her. So very much like a child's mind here thinking about how she's going to run away and and look for her dad and and her and Mosby kind of spend some time in the house talking about that. She packs up everything. She says she pulls out the cash from her mama's hiding 
filming place. And then she decides that she's going to take off. Great. Thank you. Okay. So what was your take on those opening pages? All right. So we start with a kind of an epigraph of sorts. It is a group of song lyrics from Richie Havens, motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And I'm a long, yes, I'm a long way from my home. It's a beautiful epigraph. And that's a beautiful song. I actually listened to some Richie Havens when I was listening to this, or when I was reading this query, because I wanted to get like seeped in the moment. I think that's one of the beautiful things about epigraphs. However, <laughs> this epigraph is is probably going to cost you about $10,000. Because when we quote songs in books, using it for commercial use, we have to get permission from the rights holder. And lyrics are very expensive. So I just want to let you know, you might be podying up thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars to use this lyric. But it is a very beautiful song. All right. So we start with the line, which is, I lost my mother in 1969 in one of the hottest and most disagreeable summers on record. I like this kind of directness of this writing for coming of age. We're not exploring this in a child's mind per se. We're kind of as an adult looking back. So I like that we're kind of tackling it head on. I'm really curious about the structure in terms of like how much we are going to get to know our narrator in the present versus like how they are looking back. So I'm, I'm very curious about the structure, but I do, I do think it works. And on a line level, like, I think this is, this is really strong. The bottom of the first page we have yet all of that was the furthest thing from my mind on that hot August morning of mama's funeral. Looking back on it now, I remember that the idea to run away came to me fully formed as I stood beside mama's coffin in my best dress while neighbors and friends milled past whispering that poor Emma Joy was now an orphan. So we're getting so, so much here just on the line level in terms of how she feels and what's going on in the moment, kind of politically and the setting and the heat. It's a very, very immersive kind of opening scene at this sad funeral in this sad moment. I also really like this bond between Mosby and Emma Joy. I just think it's really interesting. It's kind of an unexpected friendship. You know, they sit beside each other at the funeral. It says Mosby sat still and stoic beside me like we'd made a pact to not fall to pieces in front of an audience. You know, that they're on the same page. They're obviously not related by blood, but because, you know, it was the, the mother's boyfriend. I just think it's, I don't know. I think it's a, a really interesting kind of found friendship, unexpected friendship kind of hook that I think is really interesting. I had a lot of questions about how did the mother die, right? Was it suspicious? Was she ill? It said like unexpected, but it doesn't mean she wasn't ill. So I just have a lot of questions about this. And I think some of it might just because we are, this is a kind of a coming of age story. We're really in this child's mind. So maybe this child isn't thinking about these things in the moment, but our narrator is proving to be very kind of sitting back and observing this situation. So I'm just confused on like what role the narrator is playing here in terms of what they do and don't want us to know and how much we're supposed to be in a childlike's mind versus how how much we're supposed to be kind of looking back. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's all kind of interesting questions to me and and definitely speaks to the fact that it is it's literary fiction. Another moment I liked was it says Mosby walked to the sink and filled a glass of water to pour onto mama's potted geranium that had the audacity to sit pertly on on the windowsill. Mosby, I don't want to live with Mrs. Reamer. She has two other girls living there and they don't like me. So we're starting to get the rapport of the two of them about he finds himself very at home in the home to kind of water the plant. I thought that was a lovely kind of domestic moment. I worried a little bit that the, that the dialogue was a little bit rehearsed 
And so he says the line, you know, in the query letter where I was like, we don't need this line. He says the line in the book and he says, I'm just going to say this once. So I need you to listen. A father isn't someone that you have to go find. A father is someone that comes looking for you. So again, with this being in the query letter, I'm like, okay, he's clearly the father figure. Like, I don't know. I just feel like unless there's some major twists and turns here, he's going to be the one that's like left standing at the end. And so I think we just need a little bit more to, yeah, I don't know, just to kind of root for it and wait for it. And the payoff, um, especially in literary fiction, isn't always instantaneous, whereas I think you're, you're giving us a lot here. Another thing is, why isn't she concerned about the house or what's happening with the house? Is Mosby going to live in the house? Because it says, I pulled all the cash out of mama's hiding place, bottom of the flower tin and coated in a fine film of white and threw some clothes into a sad sack onto a duffel bag that used to belong to daddy. And later on, she says, I'm not taking much because I don't need much. I can come home anytime. And I'm like, well, would they sell the house? If she, yeah, I'm just confused about who, why she thinks that the house would still be there or whether it's Mosby's going to live in it. So those are kind of some of my questions, but I think it's really interesting. I think it's really good. And as I said, for literary fiction to have a strong hook like that, I, I think there's a lot here that's working. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you so much. Okay, Cece, let's go to your next query letter. Dear Ms. Lyra, I am seeking representation for my 100,000 word memoir, Redacted, if the Nanny Diaries by Emma McLaughlin and Nicola Krauss were a nonfiction and had a child with Lightning Flowers by Catherine E. Standifer, they would produce my book, which covers a tumultuous five-year journey working as a full-time private chef for wealthy, complicated families while unknowingly battling a rare and invisible illness. Unlike other typical chef memoirs that tell the story of the author's journey from apprentice through their climb to successful chef slash owner, my story deals with me as an already established professionally trained chef working in the private homes of wealthy families, giving a glimpse into their lifestyle. From 2002 to 2007, as a healthy and fit man, I developed unusual symptoms that coincided with the appearance of my employer's new romantic partner, an obnoxious person with a drinking problem. His attitude and an incident where I felt physically threatened prompted me to leave for another position that I thought was my dream job. However, that dream quickly changed into a nightmare when the employer turned out to be a sociopath. After experiencing worsening symptoms, emotional abuse by the employer, and once again fear for my physical safety, I moved on to another job for a celebrity and his much younger wife. The wife was insecure and a difficult-to-get-along-with woman. My symptoms worsened, mystifying doctors, and I needed to move on from that job. After going through multiple unbelievable interviews, being unemployed for eight months, and living in a hotel, I eventually settled into the perfect job where I finally discovered the cause of my symptoms. However, when I thought I was settled, serendipity guided me to another health discovery, which, if left undiscovered, would have led to my death within two months. My journey is a testament that no matter what you go through, life has a plan to get you to the other side. I am happily married to my wife and best friend. We live in upstate New York and are parents to three spoiled geriatric dogs and four very demanding cats. I currently live with the consequences of rare chronic illness and continue to work full-time as a private chef to the bafflement of my doctors. I am an honor graduate of the Culinary Institute of America with 36 years of experience as a private chef. I maintain a self-titled website where I post fiction and non-fiction short stories. 
attached, please find the first five pages of the book as per your submission guidelines. I look forward to your feedback on my memoir and hope you will allow me to send the rest of the book for your consideration. Content warning, adult language, alcoholism. Best regards, Tate Basildon. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, so can you give us an indication of word count and then your take on the query? This is around 460 words. I do think there's room to compress, but it's still within the range. So if you feel like you need all these words, that is okay. My notes for the query letter. The second paragraph that starts with, unlike other typical chef memoirs, I would actually delete it. I don't think you need it. It's telling me what your book isn't more than it's telling me what your book is. But if you really love it, I would just put it all the way down before the author paragraph. I would start with your hero's journey, right? Like instead of telling us this is different from these other books. And let's talk about that hero's journey. I felt like I was a bird looking at a distance, like hearing someone like summarize their journey in a resume as opposed to a book. There wasn't enough specificity in what was going on, especially not in a way that showed me how the two plot threads, your health and your career as a private chef, came together. I understand that it was happening at the same time, but I'm not sure that I'm clear on how it came together and I really want to be. It read more like noteworthy points, but not quite a story. I think, again, like the challenge might just be between this this connection that I'm talking about. And an example is, can you find your major dramatic question? Because I can't. I can definitely see a sentence that is all about the heart of the story. My journey is a testament that no matter what you go through, life has a plan to get you to the other side. I can see the heart, but I can't really see the climax. So I would rework it. I would look at memoirs such as Educated, memoirs such as Made, memoirs in which a person's internal life and external life are coming together, even though it's not obvious how, except for the fact that we have access to the character's psyche. And I would just rework this. And also, not to be cynical, but did I read that line right? No matter what you go through, life has a plan to get you to the other side. Because for some people, that doesn't happen. Some people die. Don't know if I'm becoming cynical here or going too dark. But again, I don't know if I read your line right, but it just got me thinking. I was like, nope, that's not always the case, which is not a problem. Just saying it across my mind. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, can you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages and then your take on them? So we have our protagonist, who is a private chef. He's in the kitchen. He's chopping vegetables through interiority. We know that he works for Mr. Roland as the chef. And we know that Celine, his wife, is the housekeeper. We know that they live in a cottage on the estate and they love living there. It's really beautiful. We also learn about his job. He loves his job. Loves, loves, loves being a private chef. We also then are introduced to Antoine, all through interiority, who is Mr. Roland's boyfriend. Now, Antoine, I don't, I don't want to be mean here, but is not a very nice person. He's kind of yucky. So we flash back quickly to the protagonist meeting Antoine, and he was very rude. That was not appreciated. And the protagonist, you know, back in the present day scene is thinking to himself, like, I really hope he doesn't cross, he doesn't come into the kitchen, essentially. He doesn't want to cross paths with Antoine. When Antoine does come into the kitchen, however, and the protagonist is expecting him to be rude and to ask him for a snack, Antoine is weirdly polite, which is really surprising. The protagonist turns around and even before he sees Antoine, he can smell alcohol in Antoine's breath. And we learn, again, through interiority, that alcohol is a trigger for our protagonist. 
The very next paragraph explains why his parents, who divorced when he was five, were both alcoholics. So we get a paragraph on that, and that's where the pages end. So I don't know if that information continues, if we get more details on his childhood, or if something else happens, but that is where our pages end. So now for my take on these pages, I will do the same format as I did with our last critique. I'll start with micro and then I'll go to macro. My first note is the writing on a line level needs work. An example of the work it needs is there's a lot of repetition. So for example, the word kitchen is said three times in the first three lines. The protagonist is in the kitchen, and these are actually really easy fixes. So here's an example. Instead of saying, I stood quietly at the kitchen island's marble counter on a warm Saturday afternoon, you don't need the word kitchen because the next clause is cutting away at vegetables. I'm going to know you're in the kitchen. And even if I don't know for sure, I will know because the next line says that you were looking out through the conservatory attached to the kitchen. I still think you can delete kitchen there too, by the way. The third line starts with the large, well-equipped kitchen in the enormous modern mansion. And it's not just kitchen, by the way, because I understand that like repeating that word might just be something that kind of slipped through the cracks because it is a memoir about cooking. The word estate is repeated. The word beautiful is repeated, lived, living. So I would just, again, watch out for the writing on a line level because it does take me away from reading a story. When I start noticing clunky sentences or repetition, I start thinking about the writing as opposed to the story. And I never want to be thinking about the writing unless it's to go, oh my gosh, I love the writing here. I highlighted repetition in the first paragraph so you can see what I mean. But if you continue reading, the repetition does continue. It's not just a first paragraph situation. And again, easy fixes, right? Like instead of writing kitchen, just write space. I also noticed a lot of name-splaining. So Celine, my beautiful wife, and Mr. Roland, like the owner. And like, there's just a lot of like names and people's descriptors. I wasn't reading when I said that. I don't remember the exact words, but I did notice a lot of name-splaining. And this is totally a matter of taste, but I don't like name-splaining. I like figuring out who people are in a more subtle way. Maybe that's your thing. So that's okay if it is. There's a lot of description, which is really well done. So absolutely excellent. My question on that, however, is one, the smell of flowers, would that affect his job? Like, because he's cooking and he's a chef, right? So I, I assume that like scent and taste are so connected. So I was I was wondering if if that affected him. And in wondering that, I noticed that even though the descriptions are great, I kind of missed more specificity when it came to the food, both in terms of his love of food. When I think of memoirs like Sweet Bitter, there's so much detail, like granular, granular detail and texture on the food itself that I kind of missed that. And also when he just references meals. So for example, there's a part where he says, you know, Antoine is going to come into the kitchen and ask me to make a snack. Maybe make that more specific. Maybe make that, ask me to make whatever snack he typically asks, especially if it's something funny and kind of outlandish that's going to make us realize what a high maintenance person Antoine is. I also had interesting questions. Like, for example, he mentions how as a private chef, he barely cooks the same thing twice. And I'm like, do these families not have favorite meals on repeat? That's interesting. I, I would want to know more about that. I imagine they weren't foodies, but I guess they are. And also the protagonist talks about how Mr. Roland lost his partner a while ago. And ever since then, he's had like a revolving door of boyfriend situation going on. 
And I'm wondering, like, he didn't meet Mr. Roland when he was still married. So I'm wondering, like, does he know this through rumors? Maybe there's other staff that tells him things. And then we can see, like, the rumor, the gossip mill. So there might be opportunity there to just, like, really ramp up the juiciness. And I wonder if there's, like, a specific meal that Mr. Roland asks for right before he's about to break up with his boyfriends. Anyway, as you can see, I wanted more, like, food connection. My big picture note is that I don't think the scene, this scene, is doing what it should do. I think we're establishing too much of what happened before the story started. Mr. Roland's habits, the fact that he loves his job, the fact that he doesn't love Antoine, the fact that he has a very understandable issue with alcohol. And these are all important things, interesting things, but I don't think they belong in the first pages. I would much rather this context come in later. I would rather stay immersed in the scene, but have the scene be a little bit more dynamic. Give the character a story forward goal, a clear obstacle with power and balance. You know, I'm suggesting a whole bunch of sharp specifics. You'll see this when you get my notes. And I just wanted to to really just be immersed in what's happening on the page, something that a camera could capture and have the interiority elevate that as opposed to have the thing that the camera could capture be, be a little mundane and have the interiority be interesting. Like I want it interesting on both fronts is what I'm saying. So yeah, that's my big picture note. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, let's go to the last query letter. Dear Ms. Waters, I am seeking representation for my 93,000 word upmarket fiction novel, Redacted, which will appeal to readers who are looking for stories that involve complicated female characters, difficult pasts, and layered family dynamics. Lena Thompson knows she's made mistakes, but she doesn't dwell on the past. No amount of I'm sorry is will bring her childhood friend, Abby, back to life or clear Lena's conscience. Instead, Lena concentrates on being a good wife and more importantly, a good mom. When her husband Gabe blindsides her by accepting a job offer in Vietnam, Lena feels angry and betrayed. Faced with moving halfway across the world, Lena does the one thing she has avoided for years. She packs up her children and brings them home for the summer. Her mother is set on throwing her father a family reunion-style birthday party, and being with the family for the summer will distract the kids from the fact that they haven't gone abroad with their dad. It will also give Lena the time she desperately needs to figure out if her marriage can survive. Soon after they arrive in Connecticut, Lena discovers Abby's older brother, Russell, has moved back to the neighborhood. Determined to keep her distance, Lena focuses on making summer special for her three children while navigating her rocky relationship with her mother and wrestling with her feelings towards Gabe. As the summer unfolds, Lena is increasingly drawn to Russell and the memories of the time she spent with him and Abby. By the end of the summer, Lena must decide whether she can forgive Gabe for taking his dream job without consulting her, whether she can forgive herself for what she did that day when she was 10 years old, and whether she herself needs to ask for forgiveness for a secret she's kept and a decision she made so many years ago. A Time Between is a third-person close narrative that moves between the summers of 2006 and 1979. Like The Paper Palace by Miranda Cowley Heller, with a style more reflective of Truly Madly Guilty by Leanne Moriarty. A Time Between explores themes of regret and responsibility and the importance of forgiveness and acceptance play in the struggle to come to terms with one's past and emerge wholly into the present. When I'm not sitting in front of the computer, I enjoy going on long walks with my husband and our pandemic rescue puppy, Zeus. I also spend too much time trying to get my three boys to pick up their socks. A Time Between is my debut novel. I've been fortunate to have multiple beta readers provide me with feedback. I look forward to any thoughts you might like to share. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Jennifer. Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? And let's start with the word count. 
All right, this one rolled in around uh, 454, so a little bit longer than my last one, but kind of in that same range. All right, so I'm going to start uh, at the top like I usually do. So the first thing that stood out to me was, you said, which will appeal to readers. And then instead of using comps to convey this information, you use themes. So I would really encourage you to use comps instead, because what you said was looking for stories that involve complicated female characters, difficult past, layered by family dynamics. Comps would do so much more work here that I think could just really explain again how you imagine this in the marketplace a little bit better for me and and where you imagine it sitting because those are just really passive themes and I really want to get to the hook a lot faster and and the hook is quite buried here like to me the hook is how does a woman kind of forgive her husband for taking his dream job without consulting her and you know that's a big piece of it here also some of the childhood trauma obviously is part of the hook as well. So I just think we don't have a clear hook at all, especially when we're starting with kind of passive themes that worries me a little bit. Okay, so now I want to talk about some of the vagueness, right? So no amount of I'm sorry will bring her childhood friend Abby back to life or clear Lena's conscience, right? Like, how did she die? And what was Lena's role in this? Like, if this is the big central question of the book, I understand not telling us, but I'm just not invested enough here because we never met this childhood friend, right? So all we know is our character, Lena. So we need to understand how this plays into into Lena's life. I think that's the big question here. So the next piece here, a little bit of a plausibility to me, to be honest with you. Like, I cannot imagine somebody accepting a job offer to a country halfway around the world who has a wife and three children in school. Like... That is like psychopath behavior in my mind. Like, (laughs) Really sorry to interrupt. I have seen this happen. Has happened to a friend of mine. Okay. So plausible, yes. In terms of, I guess, I guess real, yes. Plausible, I don't know. I think that's the difference that I'm trying to get at. Because sure, I'm sure there are psychopaths that do this. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But do I as a reader understand this? especially in a query, right? Like there is a certain level of, you know, disbelief that we have to suspend, right? In terms of query letter writing, we understand that you're not going to be able to explain a 300 page novel in in 500 words. Like we get that, right? But implausibility is a tough one because this is so, so central to the whole book, right? So, and I'm just curious about like what the job is, what industry is this in? We're just left with nothing except like by accepting a job offer in Vietnam, right? It's like, what, (laughs) what is happening? So that's kind of, that's a big piece of the puzzle here to me. The other thing here is it says, faced with moving halfway across the world, Lena does the one thing she's avoided for years. She packs up her children and brings them home for the summer. I was so confused here because like, wouldn't you imagine that the place that you live with your husband and raise three kids is your home? So where is this home that we're talking about? Where's home for the summer? Does she mean her childhood home for the summer? Again, very different. So I would just make it really clear. Like this makes me question like, what is this character's sense of place and home? Like, what does home mean to this character? This is just leaving me with a lot of questions about how this character feels about where she lives as well. Does she not like where she lives? Therefore, she will always feel like her childhood home is her home. And yet she doesn't want to go home with her parents. So I just have a lot of questions about like setting and place, especially when we're contrasted with Vietnam, right? Like we really just need a sense of here, where is here, where is the switch? Because if this 
takes place in Malaysia, well, then Vietnam isn't very far. <laughs> but you know what I'm trying to say? But like, if this takes place in the US, which I'm assuming that it does, then we are farther away. Anyway, I just have a lot of questions about that, as you can tell. Okay. One of the biggest structural issues of this query letter is the structure, right? A lot of this sounds like synopsis. Multiple paragraphs start like this, like soon after they arrive or by the end of summer, right? Like these are such synopsis-like ways of framing things. So I really just want us to guard against leaning on that synopsis type, type of language when really we need to be thinking about selling type of language. We're really just increasing our word count unnecessarily here, which I think that there's a lot of ways that we can avoid. So then we get into our last paragraph, which to me is the paragraph that I always like at the front, at the top, which is the comps and what time period this takes place in, what the type of narrative this is. And it also says a time between explores themes of regret and responsibility and the importance of forgiveness and acceptance play in the struggle to come to terms with one's past and emerge wholly in the present. If this query letter is written the right way, we do not need this line whatsoever because the actual content of the book is going to communicate all of these things. So that would be something that's like an easy chop for me. I would also chop the line, I look forward to any thoughts you might like to share. I understand like for the sake of the podcast why you would include that, but don't include that in your actual query letter because the point of querying isn't for feedback. The point of querying is to get your manuscript requested. So instead of saying, I look forward to any thoughts you might like to share, you should say, can I please send you my manuscript? Question mark, right? Like we need that call to action as opposed to like, I look forward to your thoughts, you know, because that's just so vague and passive. Whereas a call to action is like, my manuscript is available. Can I send it to you? You know what I mean? Like that more like call to action type of language, I think would just be a lot more effective here. So I think the query letter has some um, has some work to do to kind of you know just better represent the novel that's all wonderful Carly thank you okay will you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages and your take on them we're framing the these pages with a bit of a prologue so we're talking about the fact that it's spring how old the children are and then we get into chapter one 2006 so our character sits down to type her mother a letter or an email she is commenting on everything she's done all the, all day already. You know, she's driven the children to school. She's cleaned the kitchen. She's gone for a five mile run. Her nanny has the other child at gymnastics. And so she says, I'm setting aside this time. I need to write my mother this letter. And so she's writing a letter to say that we're not coming home for this party that you're throwing for her father who's turning 70. And so she's trying to write this letter. She's thinking about different ways to frame it, thinking about maybe just inviting them out to their house and kind of just going back back and forth about that in her mind. And then her best friend shows up in the driveway who's early and our main character still needs to shower after her run before she's off to where she goes. We understand that she has a complicated relationship with her mother. And then we also understand she has a complicated relationship with her friend because her friend doesn't know a certain number of facts about her, like, you know, what, the way that she likes her coffee and, and things like that. And the friend kind of came over to vent about things that were going on at school and her friend pulls up in a fancy car. So we're learning things about the characters here. And our main character just kind of pretends not to hear and goes up and, and has a shower so that she can get ready for her day. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. What was your take on that? All right. So I will say the pages are much stronger than the query letter, which... I say hooray because I think that's something that people want to hear. Like it is better for your pages to be stronger than your query letter as opposed to like your query letter to be stronger than your pages. So well done. That's good news. So yeah, so I really hope we can just kind of bring that, that query letter up to the to the level that these pages are at. Because even though there's this little kind of preamble prologue thing, I think some of it, some of it kind of works. There's this line that says, when it does come to her, 
little bits and pieces flying towards her unannounced and certainly not asked for. It's the middle that she feels. So I think there's some really nice kind of line level moments here. I'm not entirely sure we need this little this little preamble, but I think there's some there's some nice writing here. There's another line that says, you know, when she's writing her mom the letter, it says she hesitated and then added an exclamation mark after school year that looked more enthusiastic and liked enthusiasm. So we like we're starting to get a sense of the relationship between the mother and daughter and when a character is very set in their ways that's great because we know they're going to be disrupted right so i really like that she's like no we're not going home for for this party i really like that she was she was set in her ways i also liked this friendship that it was pretty it was complicated and they don't really know each other all of that well but i think what the writer's kind of alluding to is the fact that sometimes when people's friends are kids they're kind of the adults are kind of naturally friends as well and and is that a real relationship is that a real friendship or is just based around the children. I worry that this falls into kind of talking big picture now. I worry that this falls a bit into a category of like women who have middle class lives that are thrown middle class problems and then we have to kind of get ourselves out of them. It's not to say that it is not a successful type of category or a category that isn't interesting or not relevant. It's just, I have found from like my agent perspective that this is a really hard type of women's fiction to sell right now. One editor described it to me as like the market is soft, the way that she described it to me. And so I worry without a really big, loud hook here. And again, the query letter kind of buries the hook about the husband kind of taking off here. Or the query letter also buries this whole, like, why did the friend die bit, right? Like, is that a big deal? Like, do we is that something we need to... We need to unpack a little bit more from a hook perspective because I'm just worried that we don't have enough here to really launch something in a big way. And that's what agents get excited about, right? Is like, how are we going to launch something in a big way? So there's a difference, I think, between there's a lot of books we get pitched on this show that are good. There's a lot of books that I get pitched as an agent that are good. And there's nothing, quote unquote, wrong with a lot of books. It's just like our job then is to go off and sell these books. And so I think about how if this category is a bit soft, what this book could do to make it a bit louder, right, just to stand out a little bit more. And I think it comes down to how do we repackage this hook a little bit more clearly to make it seem like the stakes are higher. You know, I just think the the middle class problems kind of book just doesn't have enough legs right now. That that's only my, that's my concern. Thank you, Carly and Cece. Let's now go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they've been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off, unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's episode is sponsored by mylifeinabook.com. This is probably the most thoughtful gift I've ever come across for parents or grandparents for the winter holidays as families get together to celebrate. It's a powerful way to connect emotionally with them, preserve their most precious memories, and show them that you really care. And best of all, it's an instantaneous gift. I've tried it with my own mother, Caroline, and she loved it. Every week, My Life in a Book lets you choose from a list of thought-provoking questions or even write your own that gets sent to your relative by email. Your relative writes their answer and can choose to add a meaningful picture. This happens every week and then at the end of one year, all their stories get combined into a beautiful keepsake book that can store your relative's memories forever and pass them on to future generations, which is printed and sent to you. You can request as many copies as you want and even get them in audio format as well. And you know how much we love audio content over here on the pod. With mylifeinabook.com, you can give those you love most a personal gift that tells them they're meaningful to you and all future generations. To save $10 off your first purchase, use discount code ABOUTWRITING10. That's ABOUTWRITING10 to get $10 off mylifeinabook.com. Today's 
guest is the author of Mud and Honey. Born in London, United Kingdom, but raised in Dubai, she now lives just outside of Boston in Massachusetts, where she writes and works as a freelance writer and graphic designer. A graduate of Northeastern University, she spent the first few years out of school purchasing mechanical parts for a local audio company. She and her husband moved to Tokyo soon after they were married and have lived there twice in the last 20 years. She currently sits on the board of the local farmer's market, where she has not only contributed to creating a sustainable community, but has also been able to bring new and diverse programs, such as a self-sustainable seed library to her town. Ultimately, she revels most in her role as mum to her three children. She loves all things farmer's market, travel, yoga, art and design, and of course, reading. She lives with her husband, her teenage son, and their three-year-old, Kokopu. It's my pleasure to welcome Roxana motiwala Tribulsi. Roxana, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. I was lucky enough to get to meet Roxana at the Vusta Library Foundation's fundraising event, and it was just so lovely to get to chat to you, and now we get to do this again. Right, so what we're going to begin with is I'm going to ask Roxana just to give you an overview of the story. I'm terrified of mispronouncing the names and the places, etc., so I think it's better that you hear it from Roxana. Great, thanks, Bianca. So Ahmad and Honey is set in Aden in Yemen in the late 1960s against the backdrop of the British evacuation or exit out of Aden, uh, they decided to make a very swift exit. And in doing so, there was a communist takeover, communist government takeover, the first and only in a Middle Eastern Arab country. And so after the communist takeover, there was some nationalization, but it was very slow to move forward. And then as it started picking up and as the, the government started to become more extreme in its thinking, the nationalization process took over and some families with businesses in Aden were affected. So this story is about a family, my family actually, it's a true story, where the business was taken over, my father was taken as a political prisoner, and my mother was put under house arrest with three young children and her mother-in-law. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, so the first question that we have to ask is, why did you decide to fictionalize this? Why fiction and not memoir? Because I feel like so many books that debut authors write are very, very close to home. I know for me, mine was, but I was never going to write a memoir. I definitely wanted to write fiction, probably because the actual story of mine wasn't that interesting, even though it was kind of based on me. But this sounds really compelling as a family memoir. So take us through your thought process there. Yeah, so that's that's an excellent question. And it was one I kind of struggled with quite a bit in the beginning as I was starting the whole process. And there were a couple of reasons why I chose to fictionalize it. And the main one being is there is very little written historically about this time period. So it was very hard to get accurate information historically, for one. And then the other piece of it was the pictures that I had and the scenes that I had and the stories that I had came directly from my mother and directly from my father. But there were all these other pieces to the story, people that were very heavily involved. And I didn't have those conversations. I didn't have, I I had to embellish a little bit to make it 
I think to really bring the story to life, it, it needed some embellishment. And that's why I decided ultimately to fictionalize it. Excellent reasons to do that. And as well, I think I think sometimes it just opens you up creatively because when it is memoir, you have to stick so closely to the truth or at least the truth as through the lens of someone's experience, etc., etc. Perception and truth are two very different things. But there are times in a story that perhaps in real life things lag. Nothing really happens. Nothing really interesting happens. And that will affect the pacing of a memoir, etc. So fictional it also allows you to not only imagine things that you didn't have access to that information, but also to change things. Were there moments in the manuscript where you deviated perhaps from what you knew your parents' experience had been or not really? Was that faithful to their experience and it was just the other things that you fictionalized? That's a very good question. No, I think for the most part, I would say that I stayed true to what their experience had been. But, and I'd say maybe 85% of it is very accurate to what they shared with me. But there were places where I felt I had to embellish or I had to fictionalize it and I had to take it to, because otherwise it just wasn't, like you said, it was, there wasn't enough there or it, it didn't carry well into the next section or portion or, you know, it didn't read well. So so yeah, I did embellish in some areas. It was very interesting because as I was writing it, a lot of things would come very naturally and a lot of scenes would come very naturally and made sense to place into the story. So, And have you visited these places where these things took part or did the setting come alive for you through your parents' retelling of everything? I have not visited Aden, Yemen. I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in Dubai. So I have that perspective. But for a lot of, I spent a lot of time on YouTube. There, are, there, were, there was a huge expatriate community in Aden in the 50s and 60s. There's also a couple of fantastic Facebook group pages. But a lot of these people posted, have posted these old video reels of their life in Aden. And I got a lot of it from that. A lot of those old YouTube reels and videos of the beaches and the shark nets and it was all research. It, none of it is from personal experience. And that's wonderful because something that is frustrating sometimes is barriers to entry for some writers. Because you hear of these best-selling authors who decide they're going to write a book about the Galapagos, and there they go, jaunting off to the Galapagos, spending a year there, or they're writing something about Paris, and so they live in Paris for a year. For the rest of everybody else, they can't afford to do that. And sometimes even a one-week or a two-week trip is exorbitant and not within their price range. So what you're saying makes me so happy, and it's so encouraging, that you don't have to travel to these places to write authentically about them, so long as you do your research, so long as you're finding these videos having discussions with people who have memories of the time, who have so much to tell you. So that's wonderful there. I had a conversation with a podcast listener who mailed me the other day, who's also a student, who said, Bianca, what is the technical term for when you manage to balance exposition with dialogue, with description, all of these things 
quite seamlessly. What is the technical term? And I said the technical term for that is bloody good writing. (laughs) There's bloody good writing. That is what we all aim for, to find a balance where you don't have one chunk of paragraph that is just description and then one chunk that is just dialogue and then one chunk that is just exposition. It's kind of blending all of these things together and that's what we're all aiming for. That's what we try and get to as writers is bloody good writing. And now when you're writing something like this, Roxana, that is based on history, this is such a different experience to what many North American readers have of the world. So you are trying to be true to the time period. You are trying to bring a world alive in your reader's mind that they would probably find very foreign and they need quite a bit of context for that while you're still trying to entertain and tell a story. So you're aiming for bloody good writing, but you have got a lot of challenges in order to do that. And you managed to do that. So how did you approach that? Was it layered writing, one lot where you stayed true to the facts of things, one lot where you then added dialogue? How do you balance all of that without it making it read like a history textbook? Yeah, (laughs) that is a really, really good question. Editing, really good editing. I had a fantastic editor. As we went through the story, and I I had a journal that my mother had kept and that she had typed at night. And so I really followed that dateline and I followed the events through that journal. It was only her side, not my dad's, but it still really helped to formulate what was happening. So I created this timeline based on her journal. And then I went and researched what was happening historically and filled in that timeline. Now, I wasn't so organized where I had like these charts up on the wall and I had it all laid out. It wasn't like that at all. I tend to like to write as I'm going. And so I was filling in as things were happening and historically pushing things in as what you needed to know, like it, you really needed. And the history of Yemen and that period is, is nobody really knows much about it. And there's so much happening there now and today. And I feel like people, especially in North America, don't really know the history of Yemen or how incredible this country was and has been. So that was very important to me to capture that. And so I really did kind of fill it in as I went along and tried to there were points in the story where I had written it and it did sound like a chunk of history and then dialogue and then a chunk of history. So then I'd have to go back and my editor was just, she's incredible. And she really helped to make it more natural, to make it conversations, to make it thought, to, to really integrate it more appropriately. Yeah, we'll come back to your editor now. But what you were saying about most people don't know about Yemen, I was thinking my first exposure to Yemen was on Friends when Chandler is trying to get the hell away from Janice and he tells her he's going to Yemen. And she goes, what is the address you're going to be at so I can write to you? And he goes, one Yemen road, Yemen. Right. So that's, you know, this is North Americans people exposure to that. So yes, it is a huge challenge to bring a place alive in the reader's mind that they are not remotely familiar familiar with. And this is something that happens with fiction that is based in these kinds of settings. It happens with places that you've made up for our listeners. If you're doing world building and you've created a world that doesn't exist, then you equally have to make it come alive in the reader's mind. These are all huge challenges that you face along the way. In terms of beta readers, Roxana, did you have any of them, like North American beta readers who were saying, 
I need more explanation on this because maybe in your mind it, it made sense, but for North American readers, they were like, oh, I'm not quite sure what this is. Or was that something that the editor was doing for you? Who read your work along the way? So this is a very interesting story. As I started researching on Yemen, I began by reaching out to universities with Arab studies departments. And I reached out to several different professors, and then I found some scholars, some Yemeni history scholars. And I found this one in England who wrote back to me very promptly and said, I know the president of the, of the British Yemeni Association in London, and I've reached out to him and he's willing to talk to you. And he happened to be in Yemen at that time. And I thought, oh, wow. And he told me his name and I thought, why is this name so familiar? And I realized later I was reading his book. It was like one of three books that's written that time of, of, you know, that historical period. And I was actually reading his book. So his name's Noel Brahoni, Dr. Noel Brahoni. And he was a diplomat in Yemen at that time with the British embassy and has gone on, speaks fluent Arabic and is an expert in Yemeni history and continues to write today about Yemen. So I reached out to Noel and he wrote right back. And it turns out that Noel was also friends with my parents and he knew them in Yemen and he knew their story and he remembered their story. So we, we were actually traveling to England in a, I think it was six weeks later, my family and I. So we arranged to meet and have coffee and he was incredible. And he has actually been with me through the entire process. So when it was done, he got a, one of the first copies of the manuscript and combed it for any historical inaccuracies. He even to the point where he was able to describe people's personalities to me. So I could really try and incorporate that into the, into describing these characters in the book. So he was incredible and has been just a, you know, a, a lifesaver through the whole process. And outside of that, I did have my other beta readers the most comments I got was that people really didn't know anything about Yemen and they had learned so much and it made them want to go learn more about the country. Amazing. Okay, so another question that I have for you is in terms of your journey to publication. So you have published with 1016, which is an indie publisher, which we've spoken about before on the show. We've had one of the authors on before. Can you tell us your journey to publication? Did you approach them directly? Did you first go via agents? Because there are so many different ways to publish. And I think so many of our listeners get frustrated by how many gatekeepers there are along the way. So I'd be interested to hear your journey. Yeah. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to do initially. And my priority was getting the story out and it was primarily for my family and for my parents. But once it was done, I thought, well, maybe I should try, I should, you know, try the traditional route. And I did. And I, I think I must have queried, I don't know, maybe 80 agents. I did a couple of writers conferences where I where I did one of those, like the speed dating with agents. I did, I think I had nine or 10. Everyone requested the manuscript. Two or three of them came back with a lot of feedback. One in particular was very, very interested in the manuscript. And she was, she's been sort of, we've gone back and forth over, over this last year as well. And then when I, I heard the podcast, the, the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast episode with Maggie Smith, 
And I still remember exactly where I was sitting that day. And I listened to it. And she was talking about 1016. And she said, you know, I, I think she said something to the effect of I queried about AT agents. And then I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and I was like, oh, that's exactly how I feel. I don't want to do this anymore. So that afternoon, I sent a submission to 1016. And then really, I, I kind of forgot about it because I was busy with family and, and we had a lot of things going on and we were moving. And, and about, I don't know, maybe four or five weeks later, I got an email from 1016 saying, we're really interested in your manuscript and we'd like to have a, you know, Shannon would like to have a conversation with you. So I set up the conversation and that was it. It was it just made so much sense at that point to move forward with, with 1016. It was exactly what I wanted. There were some other, I don't even know. I, mean, I think they're not really independent publishers, but there's a couple of companies out there and they're like, oh yeah, we'll publish your book for $30,000 or whatever. And I thought, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> I think I'll pass. So I think ultimately 1016 ended up being exactly what I needed. And it's been a phenomenal relationship. They're really, really talented for a small indie press and they're really finding their way. They're amazing. So I've been very happy with that decision. Yeah, you know, we're hearing that more and more when it comes to indie publishers, the passion that they bring to the books that they do, because it's not like a Penguin Random House who's churning out a hundred and something titles a week. They put out however many books a year and those ones they put a lot behind and they're really passionate about. And something I love about them is their covers. And you have a beautiful cover and Maggie had a beautiful cover as well. How involved were you in that process? Very. And actually we had the same cover designer. So <laughs> she was, Kaylee's amazing. And we went through several different iterations of, of the cover and we changed the name. We actually changed the title of the book this past summer. So the concept we had originally was completely different from what we have now. And when we decided that the title was going to be of mud and honey, I sat down with Kaylee and she's like, okay, so do you have any ideas? And I said, I don't have one idea. I can't, I know I don't have any. And so she said, well, I have this idea. What about one hat? You know, we have a, the man, a man and a woman's hands and we have one in mud and one in honey. And so we tried that and she was taking pictures. She had people in the, in, you know, at, the office at 1016 and they she was incredible so we it evolved over time and then towards the end I mean even every little detail like I really felt I wanted a middle like I wanted to wanted it to feel Middle Eastern I wanted it to have that that ethnicity to it I wanted people to look at it and be curious about why there was that intricate arch on the top of you know and so things like that we worked really well together she was so responsive it was very easy it was very very easy and it sort of evolved very very quickly into what we both were comfortable with yeah and you can see that you can see that you as the author had a hand in it and that always just means so much more because a lot of the times publishers are like here's your cover we hope you like it <laughs> that's kind of where you where you land with things one last question Roxana before we go is in terms of including foreign words in the text and we get this question a lot from listeners who go, okay, so if it's a foreign word, does it need to be capitalized? Does the meaning need to become clear within the text? Or do you include a glossary of terms, et cetera, et cetera? What was your approach to that? Yeah, that was interesting because I actually, I some of those, and you'll see through the manuscripts, some of them I followed along with English and others I didn't. And I tried to sort of 
imply what it meant, where it was easier to understand. And some places I didn't do it at all. And I felt like it's that I think is such a hard question because I, I remember I forget which podcast it was, but I know it was one of one of yours where you were interviewing an author and, and it was like, you know, if people really you you don't need to t- explain everything. And if people are really want to know, then they will go and figure it out and find out. And I feel with with the two different languages that I have in the book, in addition to English, it can be somewhat difficult to to exp- I don't I didn't want to explain every single thing and but it's it's that's a really hard one I don't know I mean some books I read where they do explain it and some they don't and I mean I'm not sure what the right answer is I felt that in certain areas of the book it warranted explanation and in others it didn't and and I sort of moved along very fluidly with it yeah and that's an important distinction to make because remember with these things we, we give you, as our listeners, so many do this, don't do this, etc. But there are no hard and fast rules. We just, when we say try and avoid a prologue, we're saying it because 95% of the prologues we see are not good prologues. And that's why we say avoid them. But when you do them well, then it's a beautiful prologue is a wonderful thing. Um, and it's the same as when it comes to this. There is no rule for it. I know with my first novel, I included multiple languages in it. And I included a glossary of terms and my publisher took that out and they were like, the reader will figure that out. And I had some readers who did figure it out and I had some readers who messaged me to say, I really wanted a glossary of terms. So, you know, you can't please everyone all the time, but certainly this is something that you get to decide for yourself. Roxana, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I am incredibly honored that we were a part of your journey, that you heard an episode that led you to your publisher. It's always wonderful when that happens, that serendipitous falling into place of of all of these things. And we wish you much success with the book. For our listeners of Mud and Honey, we're going to put it up on our bookshop.org affiliate page so that you can find it there. And good luck with your next book, Roxana. Thank you so much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. 
And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CC Lira agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.